I'll invite everybody to turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 9 today. Jeremiah chapter 9. We've been looking at some of the great passages in the Bible, specifically in the Old Testament over the last several weeks, that sum up or summarize what we, uh, our obligation and responsibility to the Lord. What does the Lord require of you? Would be a good title to these series of lessons. We started out in Deuteronomy chapter 10 with that uh, contains that very phrase. What does the Lord require of you? But we looked at other passages as well. In addition to that one, we looked at Proverbs chapter 3 last week. And we'll look at a statement in Jeremiah this morning. It's a wonderful passage. It might be my favorite from among all of these that we've looked at. But uh, hopefully it'll uh, inform us and inspire us to be the kind of people that God wants us to be. It's not only found in Jeremiah chapter 9, but Paul quotes it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and then again in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And so has an impact beyond just the people of Jeremiah's day. It uh, has an impact on us as well. But before we get to the passage, we'll do a little background. We'll set it up by looking at the historical situation in Judah during this particular time. Remember, Jeremiah prophesied in the time leading up to and then the time of, and then a few years following the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar. He really describes a very grim and bleak situation in Judah at that time. They were worshiping false gods. Chapter 7 and verse 18 tells us, They cheated their own brethren. Chapter 8 and verse 10 says, Everyone is greedy for gain from the prophet even to the priest. Everyone practices deceit. They were adulterers, chapter 9 and verse 2. They uh, sacrificed their own children by passing them through the fire. And so sacrificing their own children to false gods as, as burnt offerings. And so they had gone to that degree in their departure from the Lord. They were so hardened by their ungodliness... They were not ashamed, Jeremiah says in verse 8, chapter 8, verse 12, neither could they blush. And so they just lived in open disregard to God's will, doing really things that were extremely heinous, and yet were not ashamed of it. They were hardened by their ungodliness. One writer says, and sums it up in this way, lying, deceit, treachery, adultery, and idolatry, were everyday sins in Judah, and the people had literally worn themselves out with perversion. That's, like I said a moment ago, a pretty grim, pretty bleak scripture, but apparently that's the way it was in Judah's day. Judah, or Jeremiah, summarizes the situation in chapter 8 and verse 20 where he says, The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. Again, a a very, very bad situation spiritually. To make it all worse, the people simply refused to repent. They refused to change their ways. They just persisted in sin. It looks like they would have seen what happened to Israel and the Assyrian invasion and captivity and would have learned their lesson. But, But they didn't. They did at least as bad as Israel did, if not worse. And so God was left with no choice They had to discipline them severely. And so he brings the Babylonians into Judah, into Jerusalem, raise the city, and destroy the temple. 
And so in Jeremiah's day, it would be safe to say that Judah is in crisis, spiritual crisis, that is, and then that leads to the physical crisis that they were in. In chapter 8 and verse 22, Jeremiah raises the question, is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? In other words, is there no hope? Is there no medicine that we can apply to the spiritual wound? Is there no doctor that can treat the spiritual disease? Is there no hope for us? Well, yes, there, there is hope. The truth is that we're in spiritual crisis as well. We have all sinned. We've all turned to our own way. We've all rebelled against God. And as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we are all children of wrath, even like the rest, even just like everybody else. And so we've sinned, we've transgressed, we we're really worthy recipients of God's wrath because of our own choice, because of our own behavior, because of our own turning away from the Lord, turning to ourselves, turning in our own way. We've put ourselves in that predicament. Is there no balm in Gilead? <laughs> Is there no hope for us? Is there no medicine that we can apply to soothe the wound or to heal the disease? Well, yes, there is. There is hope for us. It's the same hope that Jeremiah discusses with Judah in Jeremiah chapter 9. Here's our passage for today, verse 23. Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Here's the solution. If you're going to boast, boast in this, that you understand and know me. The solution is understanding and knowing the Lord. And so we're going to talk about that a little bit. Before we get to that point, Jeremiah specifies and indicates some things that we shouldn't boast in. In this passage, to boast in something is simply to have confidence in, in it. And so a man that goes around boasting about how great he is, he's got great confidence in himself, too, too much confidence in himself, most likely. And so that's the idea here. If you're going to have confidence in something... If you're going to boast in something, boast in this. But again, first of all, Jeremiah says, here are some things that you should not boast in or you should not put your confidence in. Let not a wise man boast in his wisdom, he says. Why not? Why not boast in your wisdom? Well, human wisdom is very limited. There are so many things that we don't know and that we don't understand. It would be foolish to put all our confidence in our own wisdom. It reminded me of the statement that the preacher makes in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1, verse 17. I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I realize that this also is striving after wind, because in much wisdom there is much grief. And increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. And so acquiring human wisdom is limited at best. And it just will not save, solve our spiritual problems. Let me just ask a few questions. What I call the new technology. If you're my age, you know what that is. 
Has the new technology solved our problems or just made them worse? In some ways, just made them worse. So we developed this new technology, social media, Facebook and Instagram and YouTube and TikTok and all of those things. Do those solve problems? Well, maybe in some ways, wow, they brought on a whole new set of problems or at least magnified the problems that we've already had. The, the technology might solve some issues that we have to deal with, but they certainly do not provide ultimate spiritual solutions. Do any of the philosophies of men, Stoicism, Epicureanism, Pragmatism, Humanism, Relativism, Existentialism, Marxism, do they solve our real problems, our ultimate, our spiritual problems? All of them have come and gone, and we're no better for them. There are so many things that we don't understand, more things we don't understand than we do understand. We don't know the future. I really don't know what's going to happen by the end of the day. We don't know what others are going to do or what others think. Just, just don't know that. We're limited in many ways. In some ways, we don't even know ourselves. Sometimes we can delude ourselves and deceive ourselves, which might be the worst deception of all. And so no wonder the, Jeremiah the prophet warns against having confidence in human wisdom. We're simply too limited. It just won't work. We've been trying it for years and years and years, and we still have the same problems. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Now when I read that, I, I tend to think, first of all, about physical strength. I think about Saul, uh, Samson. Remember his confidence, his boast was in his physical strength. Didn't work out too well for Samson, did it? You remember when uh, Delilah is trying to extract from him his, the secret of his strength? He finally reveals it to her. She, he falls asleep. She has his hair cut off, his head shaved. And he thinks, well, when they come, when they come to get me, when the Philistines come, I'll just fight them off just like I have before. That's Judges 16 and verse 20. I'll deal with them just like I've dealt with them in the past. You see, his confidence, his boast is in his own might. Doesn't work out too well, does it? And so he should have had confidence in the Lord, not in his own might. But you know, that's not the only way a person can be powerful or mighty. A person might be physically weak, but politically strong. And so there are lots of people in the world that are not physically strong. The current president's 80 years old. He's physically weak. And yet he's considered the most powerful man in the world, <laughs> you know. And so we can exercise our might or our power in other ways. Political power, the power of one's own personality, a position of a power that gives a person a lot of influence and authority over others. And we might just think, well, really, you know, a, a powerful person is simply a, a person that can get things done. By whatever means, he can get things done. And if he sees his problem and thinks, I'll just, get, I'll just take care of that. I'll get something done about that and rest in his own might and his own power and his own influence. No, there are some things you can't get anything done about in that way. When it comes to our spiritual crisis, our power, political power, economic power, positional power, power of our own charisma, 
affects absolutely nothing. You know? So, let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. If anything is clear in the Bible, it's that wealth does not commend us to God. <laughs> we have that warning over and over and over again. Our wealth, our money, just doesn't commend us to God. It doesn't affect anything as far as our relationship with God is concerned. And we see that over and over again. The rich young ruler is an example we turn to many times to illustrate the point. He wanted to find favor with God, and yet this one thing stood in his way, and he was unwilling to give it up. His wealth did not commend him to God. First Timothy chapter 6, Paul addresses this in verses 9 and 10. He says, But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. The love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. The love of money, a root of all sorts of evil. Those who strive for wealth, those who strive for material things, often pierce themselves through with many griefs and wander away from the faith. The preacher in the book of Ecclesiastes had everything he wanted and uh, didn't help him in his relationship with God at all. I think money is a necessary element in life. We have to have money to get along, and we need to have enough of it to get along okay, at least. We need to learn how to manage it well. But the accumulation of wealth for its own sake accomplishes little, if not any, nothing of lasting value. There are poor people that are extremely happy there are rich people that are extremely miserable. So if not our wisdom, if not our might, if not our riches, then what? Jeremiah says, but let him, let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me. That I, the Lord, I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Just take this piece by piece. God says if there's anything that we are to boast about, if there's anything for us to have confidence in, it's understanding and knowing the Lord. The combination of these words, to know and understand, leads, lends emphasis to the point. They're very similar, aren't they? If you think about what does it mean to know something, what does it mean to understand something, a lot of overlap between those two words, and the repetition of them may simply just lend emphasis to the idea, you need to know me, you need to understand me. But it seems that understanding takes the matter a little bit deeper, a little bit further. Sometimes Cherry and I will be eating out somewhere, and maybe I'm running late, and, and uh, she'll say, hey, I'm just going to order for you. What do you want? And I'll say, surprise me. I get there, and I'll sit down, and what would you order? Well, I ordered this. Exactly right. You see, she not only knows me, she understands me. She understands, leave off the Brussels sprouts, you know. <laughs> and so it's just, she understands me. She knows me so well, she's able to understand what I would like. And so if we understand a person, we know what they want. If we understand God, if we understand the Lord, as well as knowing Him, if we, if we know Him to that level, we'll understand what He desires from us. 
You ever take a test when you're in school? Some of us are still in school. You ever take a test and you, you got the test coming up, you, you study for the test, you, you sort of anticipate the questions, you learn the answers, you take the test. As soon as the test is over, all that information is, is gone. You did well on the test. You, you learned the answers to the test, but you didn't understand the subject. Oh, it's possible, isn't it? We've all been, most of us have been there. <laughs> and so, yeah, you can know the answers to the, <clears throat> to the questions <clears throat> without understanding the subject. You know, we can know and keep a lot of the rules of religion, can't we? We can attend services. We can sing the songs. We can partake of the Lord's Supper. We can leave money in the collection plate. We cannot steal. We cannot lie. We can dress modestly. You know, we, we can do all of these things. We can, we can keep many of the rules of religion. But if we don't come to know and understand the Lord, it's like knowing the answers to the test without understanding the subject. It's just not sufficient, is it? It's good as far as it goes. And when we come to understand and know the Lord, then yes, we will know to attend the services and contribute and sing the songs and not lie and kill and steal and dress modestly. We will do those things because we understand and know the Lord. That's what we want to do. So how can we please Him? How can our spiritual problems be solved? How can we be what we are made to be? Without these things, can't be done. It's especially impressive to me as I study through the Bible when I come across a statement in which God says, This is what I'm like. You know, when God tells us Himself, This is, this is what I'm, I'm like. We find one of those statements in Exodus chapter 34 where God says of Himself, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. God is telling us, this is what I'm like. Well, here's another passage. This is what I'm like. You need to get to know me. <laughs> you need to understand me. And you can't be all that I've made you to be unless you do. The problem in Judah was that they did not understand or know the Lord. That might seem to be a strange idea. I mean, they, they, these are Jews. They've been God's people now for several hundred years. They knew all about Jehovah. They knew all about Yahweh. They'd heard about Him since the time they were little, but they still didn't know Him. In fact, if you go to Jeremiah chapter 4 and verse 22, you find this statement, For my people are foolish, they know me not. They are stupid children. Sorry, moms. They have no understanding. They are shrewd to do evil, but to do good they do not know. My people are foolish. They do not know me. Oh, they, they'd heard of him. They'd been taught about him. They do not know me. And as a result, well then, there's crisis in Judah. Of course, they're not the only ones. There are other passages as well that bring out the same thing. Hosea says, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. In the days of the Judges, chapter 2 and verse 10, the people did not know the Lord. It said of the sons of Eli, chapter 2 of 1 Samuel and verse 12, that they didn't know the Lord. And Paul says in Romans chapter 1 of the Gentiles, they refused to have God in their knowledge. 
1 Corinthians 15, verse 34 says, Some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. He's writing to the church at Corinth. Some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. I wonder if that could be said about some in Oak Mountain. They do not know God. I speak this to your shame. So how does understanding of the Lord come? Knowledge, knowing the Lord and understanding Him. Well, through His Word, through Thy precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Psalm 119, verse 99. And so God reveals Himself through His Word. But He reveals Himself through Christ as well. In John chapter 14, Jesus has a conversation with Philip. And the other apostles are there, of course. This is what He says. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you know Him and have seen Him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. It's enough for us. And Jesus said, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And so God reveals Himself through His Word, but also through Christ. And as we learn about Christ and get to know Him better and better and get to understand Him, we are coming to understand the Father as well. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul makes this statement uh, in verse 7, Whatever things are gained to me, those things I have counted lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Just want to come to know Christ Jesus, my Lord. How do, we, how do we do that? Studying from the Word, studying His life, studying His teaching, we come to know the Lord. Well, here are three just essential, fundamental qualities in the character of the Lord. He, is, he exercises loving kindness. Well, we looked at this word last week. You remember, it's a, it's a word translated uh, loyal love or some King James mercy or kindness or steadfast love. It appears over 200 times in the Old Testament. It's a significant word. It seems like we talk about it a lot, but it appears a lot. In fact, notice that God delights in these things. He delights in exercising mercy, kindness, loving kindness, loyal love. Again, it's a fundamental attribute of God. It was one of those attributes we saw in uh, Exodus chapter 34, the passage we read just a moment ago. In the 136th Psalm, it uh, says this, Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the God of gods, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for His loving kindness is everlasting. To Him who alone does great wonders, for His loving kindness is ever over and over and over again, emphasizing this quality of God is everlasting. Do you remember in 1 Samuel chapter 20, David and Jonathan, they have a very close relationship. They, they love each other. And you remember, David tells, Saul, David tells Jonathan, Saul's son, you know, your dad is out to kill me. And Jonathan has a hard time believing it. And so they come up with a plan uh, to uh, find out whether Saul is out to kill David. And if so, how David might escape. In 1 Samuel chapter 20 and verse 8, it says this, Therefore, deal kindly with your servant 
For you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you, but if there is any iniquity in me, put me to death yourself. For why then should, I, should you bring me to your father? And so David is telling Jonathan, look, deal kindly with it. It's this word. Show me some loyalty. You know our relationship. You know we love each other. If push comes to shove, be loyal to me. Well, that, that's the quality we find in God. The loyal love that we find in Him. He's loyal to us because He loves us. He's kind to us. He helps us. He's merciful. He's loyal. The loving kindness of God is found on every page of the Bible. In His blessings, His forgiveness, His patience, His forbearance, long-suffering, the fulfillment of His promises, His salvation, His deliverance, most of all in, in the cross. We see the loving kindness of God. Now, one point that we want to make as we go through this, we just got a couple more points to make this morning. You know, if that quality is found in God, it ought to be found in God's people as well. And so if God shows loyal love to His people, we should be showing that to one another. This is an essential quality of God. We will never understand God if we don't understand this. If we, if we don't get this, we're not going to understand God. And that's our goal, to know and understand Him. That's the solution to our crisis. He also exercises judge justice. Another very common word in the Old Testament. It's been found about 400 times, about twice as many as the previous word. Uh, one, one definition says this. An analysis of this word turns up 13 separate but distinct uses of the word in the Old Testament. If we were to choose one English word that would cover all these uses, that would be justice. Justice. God is a God of justice. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Right at the end of, of this particular verse, verse 4 says, The rock, his work is perfect, all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice. Righteousness and upright is He, or righteous and upright is He. And you'll see that justice and righteousness are often coupled together in the Old Testament. Psalm 33, verse 5, He loves justice. Isaiah 30 and verse 8, 18, The Lord is a God of justice. In Genesis chapter 18 and verse 25, He will always deal justly. The work of His hands, this is uh, from Psalm 111, verse 7, the work of His hands are truth and justice. I want to turn to the 106th Psalm and verse 1. Very opening passage in that Psalm says, or down, down in verse 3, How blessed are those who keep justice, who practice righteousness at all times. It's interesting, isn't it? God is a God of justice. Blessed are those who keep justice. And that, that shows us that link between God's character and our character and practice as well. If we ever practice or promote or support injustice in any way, in whatever form it takes, and it takes lots of different forms, doesn't it? If we ever practice promote, support, injustice. We're simply displaying our failure to know and understand God. 
And so let's talk about the last of these, justice and righteousness. And again, they, they're often combined. These last two often join together. Amos 6, verse 24, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. And so you find those, that combination many times. This word appears over 200 times in the Old Testament. It's an attribute of God. In the 11th Psalm, verse 7, the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will see His face. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is He. To be righteous means to conform to the standard of right and wrong. And so here's a standard of right and wrong. And if we're to be righteous, we'll conform to that standard of right. And so we will think in a righteous way and we will act in a righteous way as well. It's to conform to that standard. Now, what, where's the standard? Who sets the standard? Well, it's not the government that sets the standard of right and wrong, is it? It's God Himself. And so righteousness is in the character of God. All right, And then He reveals that to us, as we've seen, through His Word. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. And it's also in Christ. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Since God is righteous, we're to be righteous in dealing with our fellow man. I want to look at an Old Testament passage, Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 15 says, uh, You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. Verse 36, You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, a just hen. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And so don't cheat your brother. You know, when you're doing business with him, and you weigh, put your weights on the balance. Don't, don't have a dishonest balance. That's not fair. That's not just. It's not right. And so if you're going to be like God, well, then you need to practice righteousness and justice in your dealings with your fellow man. Look at the book of Job on this as well. The book of Job, we're going to look at uh, Job chapter 29. We're going to read a few verses here. Job 29. We're going to begin in verse 12. But if you back up to the beginning of the chapter, Job says, Oh, that I were as in months gone by, as in the days when God watched over me. You know, I, and he goes on to say, I was in the prime of my days when the friendship of God was over my tent. and The Almighty was yet with me. My, my children were around me and my life was good. and People respected me. And, you know, I wish I could go back to that time in life. He describes it further in verse 12. Because I delivered the poor who cried for help and the orphan who had no helper. The blessing of the one ready to perish came upon me. And I made the widow's heart sing for joy. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I investigated the case which I did not know. I broke the jaws of the wicked and snatched the prey from his teeth. I dressed myself with justice and righteousness, and when I looked around at the people who were in need, I tried to do my best to help them. To practice righteousness, then, is to conform to God's standard of right and wrong. It deals with our own personal conduct. Righteous conduct is set within 
the Word of God. All your commands are righteousness. Psalm 199, verse 172. It's also contained in statements like, You shall be holy, for I am holy. You be holy, why? Because I'm, you be what I am. You be pure, because I'm pure. You be righteous, because I'm righteous. You be justice, you be just, because I am just. Well, in conclusion, let's look at John chapter 17. John 17, Jesus, He's going to the cross. He's met with His apostles in the upper room. They've had that long discussion, conversation, all those things that take place there. And now, and now He says this prayer as He's about to go to the Garden of Gethsemane and be betrayed and, and so forth. He says in verse 1, Jesus spoke these things and lifting up His eyes to heaven, He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that the Son may glorify You even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to do all whom uh, uh, you have given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you. That sounds like Jeremiah, doesn't it? Let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. It's what Jesus says. This is eternal life, to know you. Can anything be more critical than this? <laughs> this is it, guys. This is it. To understand and know the Lord. If we've got, we we got work to do in this area, okay, we need to get to work in this area. We need to come to know Him. How do we do that? Right here. He's revealed Himself right here. We come to know Him. Come to know Him by knowing His Son. And then, because we understand and know Him, we can live a life in which He delights. Because we're doing the things that reflect His own character. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we come before you this morning. We acknowledge your greatness, your power, your wisdom, your might, all of these things. We're thankful, Father, for your grace and mercy and love, especially as you've bestowed it upon us and manifested it through the sacrifice of your Son. Help us, Father, to come to know you better. Help us to devote ourselves to learning about you, learning your character, learning what you are like, learning your qualities, so that we might understand you, know and understand you. Help us, Father, to grow in our knowledge and understanding of who you are and what you desire from us. And so, Father, help us to do those things you would have us do, to do those things that you delight in, because we understand and know you. Father, help us to see our mistake when we put confidence in our own wisdom, in our own might, in our, in our wealth, in, our, in ourselves, in any way. Help us to see how futile that is, and learn to trust and have confidence and boast in you and only you. Father, we pray that you'll go with us today, that you'll guide us in these things, and in the days to come, pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here today, you're not a Christian, you have an opportunity to respond this morning by confessing your faith, repenting of your sins, being baptized in Jesus' name. We can, we can do that for you today.